Hello and welcome to Top in Tech. My name's Connor Darcy and I'm regular host of this podcast and a senior practice director at Global Council. Today is the latest episode in my interview series on the future of digital regulation with the leading thinkers in global tech policy. And it's a pleasure to be joined by Tom Wheeler. Tom is a former chairman of the Federal Communications Commission in the United States, where he served for four years under President Obama. He's perhaps best known from this time for introducing net neutrality rules to the US. He is a leading contributor to US and global debates about digital regulation. He's a visiting fellow at the Brookings Institution, a senior fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School, and we're also happy and delighted that he recently joined Global Council as a senior advisor. So Tom, what I'd like to do today is have a conversation which focuses on the state of play of US digital and technology regulation. And as part of that, there's three basic areas I'd like to go through. The first is almost, how did we get here? How have we ended up in a situation where the US is behind other parts of the Western world on digital regulation? The second would then be to get your views on whether there are potential points of change that in the coming weeks, months, and years might change that situation within the US with major ramifications potentially globally. And the third would then be to look at what are the future policy questions that are going to crash into this regulatory situation, this regulatory impasse. And the most obvious one there is, of course, ChatGPT and generative AI, which has been causing waves in the tech sector and more widely over the last four, five, six months. So if that sounds okay to you, let's get straight into it. You wrote recently, Tom, that the EU and the UK have a first mover advantage on digital regulation. And I don't think that's a controversial view. I think many people in Washington, DC, in London and Brussels would agree with that. I guess the question is, does that really matter? Because you could actually argue that the success of the US tech sector has been built on, or maybe not quite built on, but has at least been facilitated by this structure. And by that, I mean, first, a level of regulatory permissiveness in the US, which has allowed companies to grow without too much regulatory intervention. Before second, those first mover advantages almost been solidified and cemented by regulatory adoption in places like Europe. So the GDPR has helped, some would argue, entrench ultimately the role of the large tech companies that it's aiming to regulate. So if we, if we take that premise, why on earth would you want to change it? Well, um, first of all, Conan, thank you very much for inviting me to this uh, great podcast. It's, uh, it's wonderful to be with you. And I think that the issues that you identified certainly scope out the breadth of the topics that policymakers on both sides of the Atlantic have to deal with. You, know, you asked about this first mover issue that I wrote about. I mean, there is a first mover advantage in both the commercial marketplace and the regulatory marketplace, and they're related. In the U.S., companies were the commercial 
first mover on digital platform technology, and that did two things. One, it claimed the whole world as a market for U.S. products. That's the traditional first mover definition. But second, and why I say regulatory first mover and marketplace first mover are related, secondly, it allowed those U.S. companies to write the rules for that marketplace behavior to determine what the rules were for privacy, to determine what the rules were for market structure and market dominance, to outsource curating of content to the user at creating an environment for misinformation and disinformation. And you asked the question whether this matters. I think we ought to look at history. And, and the history is that innovators are always the ones that make the rules. And that's good. The path to advancement in science, technology, and art is that it is the innovators who push, who break the existing rules, push forward with new rules because only they see what the future was like. And we saw that. You can go back to the Renaissance and go forward from there. But in the Industrial Revolution, we saw um, that that's what was happening, industrial innovators. And I think that we are now at a point in the internet revolution where we are similar to the late 19th, the early 20th century in the industrial revolution, where we've got these wondrous new products and abusive marketplace practices. And we know what happened in the industrial era in that government representing the people stepped in and put guardrails in place. That, however, is not happening in the United States, but it is happening in the UK and the EU. So you ask the question, why should the U.S change its policy. Uh, again, we go back to this, the nature of interconnected networks that created the business opportunity in that first mover advantage. And, and that what happens in one part of the world now regulatorily happens across the world. You cited GDPR. And that I would think that the American companies would be starting to worry about the fact that they, the internet gave them a, everyone is a creator, everyone is a consumer opportunity that can now be bifurcated or cut into pieces by local rules and, or national rules. And Secondly, so that's, I guess that's the first point that preserving, how do you preserve that incredible global market? But the second point is, I think there's going to start to be some political questioning in the United States about, well, wait a minute. Why is it that a consumer in the EU or the UK gets this benefit and a consumer in the United States doesn't? And, um, so again, I go back to, I think that there, yes, 
that the first mover advantage in the marketplace was points to the US. The first mover advantage in the regulatory marketplace was points to the UK and EU, but that the companies that had the marketplace advantage are going to have to start resolving that second point in order to preserve the advantages in that first point. It's interesting. While you were speaking, I was, I was just trying to work out what I, what I thought about this. And my, the answers I've come to stimulated by what you're saying, Tom, is that maybe also why this matters is because of impact. Europe is very proud, and the UK, perhaps to a lesser degree, is very proud of the fact that it is leading on global digital regulation. But as we've talked about many times on this podcast, people have talked about it in many forums, there's, a, there's an issue here with digital regulation. It's about speed. And that's why we have things like the Digital Markets Act emerging in the EU to try and intercept some of these issues before the harm can emerge. There's a similar question here more broadly about digital regulation that almost if you regulate at source, i.e. if you regulate in the US, the potential impact of that regulation is probably higher than rules that are coming indirectly via Europe or the UK. You only have to look at, and we'll come onto this, ChatGPT. ChatGPT is, is, isn't happening in, in France or Germany or the UK. It's happening in the US and it's spreading out from there. The most influential regulatory intervention that would shape the future of ChatGPT would always be what would come out of DC were anything to come from there. Now, Europe might intervene and Europe might catch up and Europe might try and shape it in the future, but there's always going to be a slight lag effect uh, when it's coming from other countries that aren't your home country. Just on that point, though, is it entirely without hope? If you are a proponent of US digital regulation, I ask this because we've heard lots of noises. We did a podcast on this a few weeks ago about momentum behind a federal privacy law or a federal children's privacy law. And when I look at that debate and I see why one hasn't passed necessarily in recent years, issues like state preemption with regards to California, to an outsider, they ultimately don't seem insurmountable. So while things seem sticky and slow and change hasn't happened yet, do you see any grounds in the short to medium term for legislation coming in the digital realm, whether that's on privacy or something else? Well, is there hope? Yes, there has to be, <laughs> you know, and how do we get there? You know, I'm, I, I'm listening to your British accent. I am reminded of Churchill's quote where he said, Americans will always do the right thing after they've tried everything else. And I think he's a wise man. But again, let's put this in the kind of context we were talking about a minute ago. The industrial age oversight began in the States. And ultimately, it became obvious that there were advantages to the companies as well as consumers, not to have a state-by-state -state policy, but to have a national policy. And, and you talk about protecting children and things like this in, in, in privacy. Yes, there's some low-hanging fruit here. Who can be against protecting children? And, and so we begin the process by picking some of that low-hanging fruit and starting down the path. So 
we've got the political crunch there, political motivation. So you start with children and you pass legislation in that area and then you never quite know once the genie's out of the bottle. But I think what was also interesting is what you said there is about the example from the industrial age and that tension between state level rules and federal rules. And this comes on to the second part of the discussion that I wanted to get onto, that these potential points of change that might galvanize regulatory reform within the US. So let's start with the states. So we know there's privacy laws in California. We've got an age-appropriate design code in California. We have other states adopting similar laws, but sometimes different laws, sometimes contradictory laws. We have Texas, Florida on content moderation, which obviously is potentially going to go before the Supreme Court. We have other states that have been legislating on AI. So we see this potentially nightmare situation for corporates that you've just described, whereby they have a multitude of different regulatory frameworks, not just between the EU, the UK, say Australia, Canada, and the US, but also within the US. So do you, to your point before, do you see that as potentially something that could shift the dial in Congress on digital regulation in the coming years? And there's an expression over here when you talk about the states that they're often referred to as the laboratory of democracy where ideas get tried out and ultimately you need to move from the laboratory, the state to the whole outside world and, and mean some kind of a common undertaking. History has taught us that, you know, Conan, there's an interesting thing here. I, I have twice before in my life been engaged in this exact issue. I was the, the CEO of the Cable Industry Association in the early days of cable when it became clear that this growing business couldn't be subject to differing state and local regulations. There had to be national rules. And so an industry populated by people who did not like regulation set out to get common regulation. And then years later, I was the CEO of the Wireless Industry Association when we had exactly the same problem that states, one state was dealing with wireless this way, another state was dealing with wireless that way, and the airwaves had no idea there were such things as state lines. And so again, these people who were inherently anti-regulation realized how regulation was important and, and went to Congress to seek national rules. And I think at some point in time, and that that time is coming, it is going to behoove the platform companies in particular who have been resisting the kinds of political trade-offs you have to make in order to have legislation moves, it is going to behoove them to say, wait a minute, um, the rules, we, we need rules. Um, and even if they're not the rules as we wrote them, they're rules we can live with. It's interesting for anyone who's worked on European Union dynamics, politics, and policy 
you hear echoes of the attempts to create a single market in Europe. And often the driver behind the single market was the business interest. Businesses wanted more uniform rules across border in order to create markets of scale. So I suspect some listeners from the European side will almost be surprised to hear about this almost rebalkanization of elements of regulation in the US, partly because although the European single market has been a success story, it's still never quite been on the level of what we see in the US. And that is a source of envy in Europe, the way in which the US single market across all of the states has functioned to facilitate a home market of scale for US companies before then expanding to the rest of the world. On the other points of change though, Tom, so we've talked about the states, we think that this reorganization might prompt Congress to act and might perhaps, I suppose the more important point, it might force companies to build the coalition right. to get Congress That's the to key act. point, yes. But what about where it's less conciliatory or there's less of a collaborative dynamic between policymakers and industry? So I'm thinking here about the regulatory authorities. So in a funny way, I've read pieces recently in Europe which have made the point that the actions of the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission under Khan and Cantor has really made people sit up and take notice. Indeed, some are making the argument that Europe, having led on antitrust in the digital realm for the last 10, 15 years, might actually now be falling behind. So I was really interested to get your view on this. Do you agree with that? Do you think that real change might be instigated over the next couple of years? And maybe if there's a second Democrat term, on an even longer timescale, or do you take the opposing view, which is often heard in DC and elsewhere, that the ambitious agenda of these regulatory authorities could actually fall flat and you may find yourself in a situation where when all is said and done there weren't any big wins on antitrust in the digital realm let me approach that in two ways Connor. um uh, uh, one is um yes hooray for uh, for lena khan and jonathan Cantor um and their aggressiveness um which is a departure from the kind of policy that we had seen. The success of their efforts obviously will ultimately be determined by courts. And again, we go back to history because these are industrial era statutes for the most part, whether they're up to the job on dealing with the digital realities. And so it will be judges in robes, not regulators that end up making the ultimate decision. Um, if they aren't upheld, and I think we've identified the need for fixes, which goes back to our earlier discussion. If they are upheld, then consumers and competition would benefit. But either way, the fact that there is a watchdog on the beat, I guess I'm mixing metaphors there, but the fact that there is a watchdog is having an impact, one would think, in 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 executive offices as various alternatives are considered. But the second piece of my answer to your, to your question is to the UK and the EU antitrust authorities were out front 
of U.S. antitrust authorities in some of the cases that they were bringing. And I think from the vantage point over here, it looks as though a conclusion was reached that, you know, antitrust is a good approach, but it is a lengthy approach. It is ex post in terms of it's after the fact for the most part. It's very focused. And that that was one of the things that led to the push for the DMA. And how do we get something that's that's ex ante and broader? And and I think that depending upon the outcome of various court cases over here, we'll probably end up seeing the same kind of a reaction. And as you know, I'm an advocate, not only for antitrust, but also for the fact that we need a new focused digital platform agency. But again, I think that this is where the EU and the UK have been the leaders and we'll see what happens. Again, hooray, Alina and John, but we'll wait and see whether that ends up actually producing the same kind of conclusion that I think we saw in the UK and the EU, and that is we need regulation as well. Yeah, it's funny. We did the podcast with John Edwards, the UK's information commissioner, a few weeks back. I thought one of the most interesting things, Tom, that he talked about was this, was his philosophy to ensure change as a regulator. So we talked about fines and he actually said, I'm not convinced about fines as, and big investigations as the way to secure change. My philosophy is very much to secure coercion and change from companies through other means if I can. And it's almost strikes me when thinking about the approach that Lena Khan in particular is taking is almost the very opposite. Hers, her approach is the big splash, be prepared to lose cases and thereby secure behavioral change by almost being in the face of companies. Whereas John's approach is the very opposite. We go, you go slowly, you work more collaboratively and you secure change by guidance and by beginning investigations, but not necessarily concluding them and a much more cautious approach. And there's a, there is that sort of, there is that dichotomy where we'll see, I guess, over the next 18 months or so, what the ledger looks like at the end of it. But I also think that that is a litigator versus regulator approach to things as well. Sure. And the other thing that John Edwards said that I took away from your podcast was he said that the best regulations are the simplest regulations. And I think that's a lesson that we can learn as well if and when we get serious about regulating platforms in in this country, that that we need to move from the kind of very complex micromanagement that we used to do in industrial regulation to a risk identified, risk based kind of regulation that is rather simple and straightforward. If simplicity rather than complexity is the holy grail here. Let's move on to something which I'm not sure will give you that desired outcome. And that is the third point of potential change, which is around court action. And we've seen this can happen in a number of different ways. Obviously, IP protection is one obvious area 
where the role of the courts can help set industry standards and it can also affect where lawmakers look to fill gaps in regulatory frameworks. But we also have, a, have, we have these cases on a much bigger scale than even that, which is the cases before the Supreme Court concerning Section 230, which could be a huge stimulus for change in the way in which the online economy is governed. And there's lots of speculation about where the court will land on this. So I just really, I know we're, it's a difficult position to be in because we're still waiting to see how this pans out. But at this point in time, would you, if listeners were to ask you, would you anticipate major change prompted by the judiciary, by the Supreme Court on Section 230? You don't have any easy questions today, Conan. You know, I grew up in a period when conservatives were complaining of activist courts that were legislating. And the thing that we're seeing now is that it hasn't changed just because courts such as the Supreme Court are dominated by conservatives. Um, and so the, the heart of your question seems to be, will the Supreme Court go as far on tech policy as they have on social issues in legislating from the bench. And I'll begin my response by saying, I don't know. Um, but uh, there are probably some things we can look at and use 230 as your example, as the example you pointed at. The first is that um, traditionally the Supreme Court takes cases that are the conflict between circuits, you talked a minute ago about the Florida and Texas content laws in which the 11th Circuit and the 5th Circuit have made opposite decisions. And obviously, the Supreme Court is where those things traditionally get resolved. But what's interesting here in the Section 230 question is that there were at least four justices who wanted this issue to come before the court, a backup. It takes four justices to vote to affirmatively grant certiorari to bring an issue before the court. So there were at least four justices out of the nine that said, this is an issue that ought to come before the court. We don't have this traditional conflict below, but this is an issue that we ought to bring before the court. Then the question becomes, okay, are there five justices that can resolve the unknowns in this case. And, and, and so I guess if I were a betting man, Conan, um, I would suggest that the, there is a strong possibility for a decision with multiple concurring opinions, each from a slightly different angle, that ends up affecting 230 juris, jurisprudence. But because of the fact that there are Concurrence from multiple angles doesn't give a real clear-cut, hardcore, here's the new rule. But I think that you can assume that the decision, whatever it is, will politely tell the Congress, hey, this is your job get to it. And that's the crystal ball. That's as, as, as clear as my crystal ball can get. 
which Tom is not that clear. We, uh, the, uh, I have, I have, it has been said that I have lost the Windex to clean my crystal ball. <laughs> no, I mean more in the less that your prediction is not clear, more just what comes from it is not very clear there. And, uh, it sounds like a, a certain element of uncertainty for industry, but also for users is, is a scenario that could play out over time as a result of these cases. And obviously we'll have to see what then happens with Texas and Florida. And the so, sleeper is the last issue that you have. I don't think it'll be definitive in this case, or I doubt seeing anything, but with it, but the issue you raised about generative AI was raised from the bench during the oral arguments and, and takes the whole 230 question to such a different point that, that you never know what is going to be the ultimate influence on nine justices, but all of the attention being played, being paid to generative AI, you know, they read the newspapers too. Yeah, we're seeing similar debates in the UK. So I think there's been amendments tabled here to the online safety bill, which considers the question of whether generative AI should be included within the scope of that bill, which to date is only focused on user-generated content, but is, right. is what comes out of ChatGPT user-generated or not, and hence the question which I'm sure people will spend a long time grappling with. But that's where I wanted to go, Tom, because we did, we've done, how did we get here? How might it change? And I wanted to get into this chunky policy question which has arisen with ChatGPT. I think if we were to characterize last year big focus of the regulatory discussion was the metaverse ar vr and what does that mean and how do we think about regulating that moving forward but like a steam train right through the middle chat gpt has totally transformed discussions long-standing discussions around ai and digital policy more broadly i really wanted to test with you where how you see this playing into some of the themes that we've talked about already so We've seen the letter recently from a number of illustrious figures. There was Elon Musk, Steve Wozniak, a whole host of other people. And they were calling for a six-month pause in development around generative AI. Do you share that pessimism? You don't necessarily have to agree with the six-month pause, but do you agree with this, that pessimism? And I suppose the implication of their intervention, which is the regulatory approach and the the industry development of generative AI actually needs to be quite different to that of the web, smartphones, and social media, and that we have to be more cautious this time around. I was at a meeting a few days ago with Tristan Harris, who began talking about generative AI, and he began his presentation with a slide that said, nukes as in nuclear weapons, Part of the physical world as AI is to everything else. Well, I can tell you that got everybody's attention. And I think that there are probably two threshold issues out of a multiplicity of issues that we need to understand and deal with here. The first is that all the brouhaha about AI of late. And by the way, let's, let's back up to one thing. Let's not forget, you you dismissed the metaverse there, and I understand what you were saying, but let's not forget the metaverse is run by AI, okay? So you 
So this, you know, all of these mush together, that's a technical term, mush together. But all the brouhaha about AI of late has been really a, a, about how we can communicate with it in a natural language rather than a programming language. Yes, it's a big deal, but it shouldn't overwhelm how we have for years been watching as machines have been getting better at predicting based on the information that they're given. And, and so what has got our attention, appropriately so, is that we've now got communicating machines that talk our language. And that, that is a huge breakthrough. But the second thing I think that is the threshold issue here is that we enter this brave new world having failed to adequately deal with its precursor digital world. The kind of things we were talking about earlier. What about privacy in generative AI? What about market dominance when you have to have huge amounts of data and huge computing power in generative AI? What about untruth in generative AI? And the point of the matter is that we have this incredible advance in technology that brings with it the exact same issues we we've failed to successfully deal with for the last few decades. And I guess I'm an optimist and, and I want to believe that hopefully this will provide the impetus for us to get serious about the kinds of things we've been talking about throughout this entire discussion, which brings me back to where we started. That is that we will never get our arms around the topic of AI if we don't first get our arms around its online precursor and the behavior of digital platforms. And, um, and so I hope that that these issues, which are profound issues, you know, when you go back to Tristan's comment about the equivalent of nuclear effects for everything else in, in the world, uh, I hope that that becomes the prod, the cattle prod to get us to a point where we start getting serious about how do we deal with what are the effects of digital technology and focus on those effects rather than the technology itself, which is going to take, which is going to require us to establish a new thought process for how we establish guardrails in the digital era that is different from the thought process of the guardrails from the industrial era. So, Tom, on that point, we've seen. The Italian data protection regulator has forced the halt of ChatGPT, at least temporarily, in Italy and on privacy issues. On privacy issues, this seems quite on privacy curious. issues, right? Yeah, a very curious development in the sense, to your point, that it's almost 
in and of itself highlighting the piecemeal nature in which digital regulation is taking place. That of all the things that ChatGPT has been called up for, it is privacy rather than its potential for misinformation, its potential to impact on the education system, its IP protection, where we see Getty taking right. companies to court. So I guess that sort of reinforces the point that you've been trying to make that we don't have that overarching framework even in europe we don't have that overarching framework that is necessarily consistent and comprehensive enough to deal with these new emerging technologies i guess i'd like i'd just be interested to see i mean of you presented a, both an optimistic and potentially slightly pessimistic outlook then on on ai because i suppose if we take your point to its take it to its end point that's going to take quite a while in the u.s for us to get the previous round of digital technologies regulated properly, so generative AI is still some way off. I guess in the interim, where do you see the major concern? I mean, obviously there's opportunities with generative AI, but where do you see? Is it, is it misinformation and disinformation that worries you most, or is it something else that really you think should be the stimulus for regulatory action? So um, I think it goes back to the three classic issues, uh, privacy as Italy, and now I understand other European nations are also starting to consider the marketplace effects. As I said, you have to have access to huge amounts of data and you have to have access to huge amounts of computing capacity. And the number of companies that have those assets, you can count on the fingers on probably one hand. And what's the impact of that going forward and going back to my earlier point of who then makes the rule about generative AI. And then the thing that has impressed me is the old programmer's language expression of garbage in, garbage out, that, that really generative AI is a reflection of us. I saw a study this morning that Azim Azur put out that looked at cultures and how the cultural influence of the data on which the AI is being trained affected the outcome of the information. Man, that is so far down the road from kind of things we've been talking about thus far. But it ought to give us the incentive to start dealing with these issues. And I think, let's go back to the low-hanging fruit. You've got to pick the low-hanging fruit before you can climb the tree. It sets the precedent. It sets the example for, okay, we did this here. How about if we then move up the tree a little bit? And, and so we've got to start picking the low-hanging fruit. We can't say we're going to go shake the tree and all the apples are going to come off at one time. Um, and so I, uh, again, I go back to, I am, I am hopeful that, that AI, I, I, I think that, you know, what Sam Altman has been doing, for instance, in terms of talking about responsibility is incredibly important and not enough, but let's start down that process rather than saying, we're going to shake the tree and all the apples are going to fall at once. Yeah, and I think it's quite interesting to the point there about Sam Altman is that, as you say, while we see he and OpenAI making lots of the right mood music, there is that central concern about the transparency, the openness of OpenAI and how decisions are taken. 
and I, that is obviously felt within the United States, but it's obviously felt almost more acutely in other parts of the world where the companies aren't European, for example. So right. there's that sense of remoteness and that sense of concentration of power and decision-making, which really underpinned the tech clash over the last 10 to 15 years. And when you see a potential technology as powerful as generative AI, then I think we will see a deepening of those concerns, which again is linked to the databases and the data that is trained on. Plus that basic governance question is something I would expect to see really crop up over the next few years. Tom, look, thanks so much for taking us through. I think we've got a really good sense of the debate in the US. And I think there are real potential points of changes that I think listeners should be looking out for in, in the coming years. And that I think most importantly, that state dynamic, state federal dynamic and how that plays out is going to be one of the fascinating defining tensions over the next few years that could end up stimulating digital policy reform in the US. So thank you for taking us through that. And for everyone on the line, thanks for joining us. If you, your business or your investment are exposed or indeed just interested in some of the topics that Tom and I have been talking about today, whether that's generative AI, whether that's Section 230 and content, whether that's a federal privacy law, don't hesitate to get in touch. You can find contact details for myself, for Tom, and for GC's sectoral teams on the GC website at www.global-council.com or via the link in the podcast notes. So thanks again, Tom, and thanks to everyone on the line, and uh, see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you, Conan.